Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. All couples fight. The dumbest arguments can feel so important in the heat of the moment. Those are usually the arguments you can laugh about later once you cool down. In the story we have for you today, a young couple never got the chance to make up after one such silly fight. A mysterious killer took that from them and got away with it for decades. The real question, though, is has this case truly been solved, or are there still questions that need to be answered? Arliss Dykema and Bruce Perry were both born in 1955 and grew up in Bismarck, North Dakota. They fell in love as teenagers, and the high school sweethearts knew they wanted to spend the rest of their lives together from the beginning. After high school graduation, they faced the first big hurdle for their relationship. Bruce went off to California to start medical school at Stanford University, while Arliss stayed behind in North Dakota to go to a local college. After one year of this long-distance struggle, the couple had had enough. Arliss was very religious, so she wasn't just going to move in with her boyfriend, no matter how hard it was to be apart. The solution was simple. They already knew they wanted to be together forever, so they would just get married. Arliss's parents felt like the kids were too young to get married, but nothing was going to stop them, so they put their concerns aside and gave their blessing to the young couple. The happy couple was married in the summer of 1974, and only eight weeks later in August, they packed up and moved to California. Stanford had apartments specifically reserved for married couples, and Arliss and Bruce were settling into their new life adventure together. Six weeks after moving to California, Arliss had a stack of letters to mail home, telling everyone about the beautiful Stanford campus and updates on how she and Bruce were doing. Bruce had started his sophomore year of pre-med, and Arliss had gotten a great job as a receptionist for a law firm. Around 11.30 p.m. on October 12th, Arliss and Bruce went for a walk in the crisp fall air to the post box on the other side of the campus. At some point during the walk, the 19-year-old newlywed started bickering about whose responsibility it was to maintain the air in the tires of their car. It was a silly argument, but in the heat of the moment, the principle of the thing felt important. Arliss got upset, and as they approached the Stanford Memorial Church, a place she already loved to go to pray and be alone with her thoughts, she decided she needed some space to cool down. Arliss told Bruce to give her some time to be alone and pray, and she would meet him back at home. Bruce was like, fine, whatever, and stormed back to their apartment where he mentally prepared for the fight he assumed would continue when Arliss came home. But Arliss didn't come home. Bruce knew the church closed at midnight, so by 12.15 he got worried and walked the half a mile back to the church to look for her. He kept a close eye out on the way so that he wouldn't miss her, but when he arrived at the church, the doors were locked and the lights were off. He banged on the doors and tried to look through the windows but couldn't see or hear anything. He decided to just walk around campus for a while and look for her. He thought maybe she decided to take a walk when the church closed if she wasn't quite ready to come home yet. Okay, if this was in the middle of the day, I could understand why it might not be a big deal. But at this point, it's dark outside and the campus is quiet. This is definitely concerning. And this is the 70s, so they don't have cell phones. They can't just call each other or check their location, you know? Exactly. They were 19, though. It feels like nothing can happen to you when you're that age. And they probably felt safe on campus. 
I'm glad he didn't just assume she would come home eventually like we see so often in these cases and started looking for her pretty much immediately. Yeah, points to him for being a good husband. Did he find any sign of her? Well, a couple hours later, he went back to their apartment, opening the door, hoping she would be just sitting there waiting for him. But the apartment was empty. Finally, around 3 a.m., Bruce called police and reported his wife missing. He told the dispatcher that he was worried that she might have fallen asleep in the pew at the church and maybe she had gotten locked in. Police contacted campus security guard Stephen Crawford, a former Stanford police officer, and asked him to take a look. He told them that around 12.10 a.m., he popped his head in and made an announcement that the church was closing up like he did every night around midnight. He didn't see anyone in the church, so he locked up and moved on. He claimed he made his rounds back to the church again around 2 a.m., where he found the doors still locked and everything quiet. But he assured them he would check again. So at around 3.30 a.m., he went back to the church, opened up an outer door, and called out to anyone inside. He didn't hear or see anything, so he locked it back up and reported to police that the church was clear. At 5.45 a.m., Stephen returned to the church to begin opening it up for the day. He was shocked to see the side door open, appearing to have been forced open from the inside. He goes in and slowly walks towards the altar, and at first everything seemed untouched. Then he sees her. On the left side of the church, up by the altar, is the body of a young woman. Stephen called the police, stating, quote, Guys, we have a stiff here, end quote. Arliss was found naked from the waist down with her pants arranged across her legs in a diamond pattern. She was lying face up with her blouse ripped open and her hands folded across her chest, holding an altar candle between her breasts. She had been beaten and there were also signs of strangulation, but what had actually killed her was an ice pick still sticking out of the side of her head. She had been stabbed with the ice pick behind her left ear and it appeared the handle had broken off and was missing. Most shocking to police at the time was a three-foot-long altar candle that was inserted into her vagina. Okay, I'm confused. How did he miss the side door being forced open the first three times? He claims it wasn't forced open until he came back at 545. He said he checked it each time and it was closed and locked until then. He's suggesting the killer was in the church that whole time. Maybe he should have went into the church to check like the police asked him to do. Then again, they also have a problem going into places to check on people when called to do so. (laughs) I know that's true. So when police went to notify her husband that her body had been found, and when he opened the door, he became the number one suspect if he hadn't already been. He was covered in blood. He explained the blood was his own, that he suffers from nosebleeds in stressful situations. He told them his wife being missing, having to call police, and all that caused a severe nosebleed. Of course, they were skeptical, but they tested the blood, and it really did belong to Bruce. He also passed a polygraph test and genuinely seemed devastated when he learned Arliss was dead. The medical examiner determined Arliss had died around midnight. Police think that means she and her killer were still inside when Bruce came by banging on the doors around 12.30, but she was likely already dead. It's possible her killer spent hours with her body after the murder, staging the scene. Arliss hadn't been sexually assaulted by the killer, rather the candle was the main sexual aspect of the case, and it had been placed in her body after she was already dead. 
Police did find semen on a nearby kneeling pillow, though, as if it got off on all of it after the fact. They also found a palm print on the candle inserted into Arliss and tested it against her husband and Stephen, the security guard who found her, but neither of them were a match. DNA testing wasn't widely available until the mid-1980s, but police kept the semen and palm print in evidence just in case. So based off the print on the candle, everyone so far is cleared. Got it. Yes, the two obvious suspects were cleared right away off that palm print. So who were they suspecting after that? She was in a public place, so someone had to see something. At least seven people were at the Stanford Memorial Church during the night of October 12th and the morning of October 13th, including Bruce and Stephen. All but one person was identified and cleared by police. When Arliss walked into that church that night, there were two people already inside that noticed her come in. She walked all the way to the front and kneeled down to pray. As the other two people got up to leave, they noticed a young man come in. He was maybe in his early 20s with blonde hair parted down the middle. A passerby also noticed the man entering the church around midnight. They told police he was not wearing a watch, he was of medium build, and stood about 5 foot 10. Arliss had just moved to the area, so she didn't have any friends or enemies. Her co-workers came forward and said a man had visited Arliss at work the day before the murder. At the time, she thought it was Arliss's husband, but when she went to the memorial service and saw Bruce, she realized it wasn't him. She described the man as blonde and in his early 20s, just like the guy seen in the church. Police never identified this man or the one seen entering the church that night. That's very weird. It's the same guy, but I doubt she planned on meeting him at the church. Her visit seemed very convenient and impromptu. Almost like he's stalking her and saw his opportunity. Did they figure out who the guy was? No, they didn't. Honestly, I couldn't find any evidence that they even tried to identify that guy, but who knows. Okay, so did they have any leads? There were a few strange leads that went nowhere in this case. For example, her parents back in North Dakota said Arliss had been trying to reach out to a satanic cult before she left for California for some reason. There was an unsubstantiated theory that the cult had followed her to Stanford and murdered her. This murder happened a little before the official start of satanic panic, but given the strange and almost ritualistic nature of how her body was staged, I can see why people latched onto this theory during what was already a superstitious time. This idea was only reinforced when serial killer David Berkowitz, also known as the Son of Sam killer, mentioned the murder of Arliss in a few letters. He suggested that he had heard details of the crime from someone he referred to as Manson II. David offered information to an investigative reporter stating Arliss Perry was hunted, stalked, and slain after being followed to California Stanford University. San Jose Mercury News reporter Jesse Safer noted that, quote, investigators interviewed David Berkowitz in prison, and now they believe he has nothing of value to offer. Police also interviewed Arliss's friends back in North Dakota and discovered that someone on the Stanford campus had taken a telephone listing under Bruce Perry's name. After confusion ensued when a close friend and Bruce's mother called the wrong number by mistake, Arliss reached out to the owner of the other number to clear things up. In a letter home to her friend only two weeks before her murder, Arliss wrote, I had to laugh about your call to Bruce Perry. Mrs. Perry made the same mistake. She called them too. 
But the strange part of this is his name is not only Bruce Perry, but it's Bruce D. Perry. And not only that, but it's Bruce Duncan Perry. And he attends Stanford University, and he just got married this summer. One thing, his wife's name is not Arliss. Anyway, next time you get the urge to call, the number is... This time, I guarantee you'll get the right Bruce Perry. With no solid leads or suspects, investigators pursued a theory that the crime was committed by a random intruder at the church. But the length of time the staging would have taken led them to believe the murderer was someone familiar with Sanford Memorial Church and its schedule. An FBI profiler brought in on the case concluded that the killer was between 17 and 22 years old, They believed he was a loner who kept a detailed diary and would have taken a trophy from the crime. Arliss's glasses were missing from the crime scene and were never found. The case went cold, and from time to time, investigators would pull it back out and dust off the case file for another look. Over the years, investigators looked into whether known killers in the area, including serial killer Ted Bundy, could have been involved, but they all had alibis for the time of the murder. That's a wild connection, but honestly, this whole case is wild, and the way she was found is wild. It really is. There were so many strange pieces that could mean nothing or could be evidence that someone was stalking her or messing with her or something. So Ted Bundy, weird security guard, nose-bleeding husband, and satanic cults, this case has it all. (laughs) Sham will tell us how this case was eventually solved after this short break. Arliss's murder remained a mystery for over 40 years, until 2016 when detectives sent all the items they had to a lab for DNA testing and recontacted everyone who was in the church all those years ago. They took a sample of each person's DNA and tested it. If it wasn't given willingly, they took it from a discarded item. They questioned everyone involved in the case again while they waited for the results. In 2018, the results came back. The semen on the pillow was a strong match to the security guard, Stephen Crawford. Detectives arrived at the San Jose studio apartment belonging to Stephen, now 72 years old, at about 9 a.m. June 28 of 2018 with a search warrant. They were also prepared to arrest Stephen for the 1974 murder of Arliss Perry. When they knocked on the door and identified themselves, Stephen asked for a few minutes to get dressed. The investigators suspected he might be stalling, so they used the key given to them by the building management and opened the door. On the bed, they saw Stephen with a large revolver. They retreated, and as they backed out, he shot himself in the head. He was pronounced dead on the scene. Oh my god, he was ready when they showed up. It's like he knew they were coming to arrest him. Killing himself over being questioned by investigators is a sure sign he's guilty of something. Did they find anything in his apartment, like her missing glasses or a suicide note or something? So he did leave a suicide note, but it was dated from 2016 and was cryptic and vague, never mentioning Arliss or the murder at all. It seemed to be hastily written, and it didn't make a lot of sense. It's believed he may have written it when investigators started questioning him again back in 2016. Detectives searched the apartment for items of interest related to the murder, but didn't find anything concrete. They did find a box in Stephen's closet containing important personal papers, such as financial records, and inside that box, they also found the jacket to a book called The Ultimate Evil, detailing the Son of Sam cases. Arliss's murder is one of the cases discussed in that book as well. The case is officially closed with Stephen listed as the killer, but some aren't so sure. 
You can't argue against the DNAs, but some speculate that he could have found the body and masturbated into the pillow, getting off on the brutality of it without actually committing the crime. Many can't get past the palm print found on the candle inserted into our list that didn't match Stephen. It's also hard to believe the campus security guard was carrying around an ice pick and no one noticed. Remember the killer had to have brought the ice pick with him. You would think that would stand out. I hate to say it, but that evidence is pretty weak. Obviously, he was a weird guy, and the DNA at the scene was his, but I'm with the skeptics on this one. That palm print belongs to someone. I mean, it's possible he could have worked with somebody else, too. Maybe knowing more about Stephen will shed some light on it. Yeah, let's get into it. So Stephen Crawford was a U.S. Air Force veteran who started working for Stanford Department of Public Safety in 1971 as a police officer. In 1972, the new police chief began reorganizing the Stanford Police Department and took a serious look at whether the officers approved to carry the guns were actually qualified to carry guns. Everyone was asked to reapply for their positions. About three quarters of the police force did not make the cut, and they were offered the option to become a security guard instead. Stephen was one of them, and he accepted the security guard position, but he complained about it a lot. He told friends that he didn't like what they were doing to him. Stephen stayed on at Stanford until 1976, but while he worked there, he always found ways to get revenge against the university. He began stealing stuff from offices, things like a human skull, a walking cane given to the university founder, Leland Stanford, and rare books. He even went down to the print shop and made himself a degree from Stanford, using a blank Stanford diploma. Stephen was eventually arrested for possession of stolen property. All of the items he stole were proudly displayed in his apartment when he was caught. He claimed he was mad at the university and the police department for treating him badly. Stephen received a six-month suspended sentence for his crimes. Some have made connections regarding Stephen's similarities to a couple of serial killers active during that time. Just like the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, and the BTK Strangler, Dennis Rader, Stephen was a military veteran and had once been a police officer. The Golden State Killer had been fired from his job in law enforcement due to a shoplifting conviction, and the BTK Strangler failed psychological tests the Wichita Police Department gave potential candidates. There is a noticeable connection between the killers and the rejection of their dream in law enforcement. It's a big leap from stealing stuff because you didn't get the job you wanted to cold-blooded murder of a stranger. I mean, who knows? Over time, he could have been getting angrier and angrier. I guess. What is it with all these serial killers either being cops or wanting to be cops? It does seem to be a common trend. Could Stephen really have been a serial killer? Well, there were other unsolved murders around campus while Stephen worked there. And at first, police in the press conference said that Stephen wasn't connected to these murders. They later changed their statements to leave a connection open as a possibility. Stephen worked at Stanford from 1971 to 1976. There were two other unsolved murders during that time, but they were also solved in 2018 using DNA technology. The first case is that of 21-year-old Leslie Marie Polov. She was found strangled on February 16th of 1973 in the foothills behind the Stanford campus. She was a recent Stanford graduate who lived with her parents in Los Altos Hills while working at the North County Law Library. Leslie disappeared after work on February 13th, and her car was found parked near the entrance of the old quarry off Page Mill Road. Her body was found three days later. She was barefoot and with her blue scarf wrapped tightly around her neck. Police reported that she had not been sexually assaulted, though her skirt was pulled up and her pantyhose were stuffed in her mouth. 
She had been carrying a purse that was not found at the scene. At the time of the murder, police were on the lookout for a man with long blonde hair who witnesses saw standing near Leslie's car before she went missing. At one point, the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department considered serial killer Ted Bundy as a possible suspect because of their similarities between Leslie's case and his other victims. Ted had taken summer classes at Stanford in 1967, but they couldn't link him to the school six years later when the murder took place. San Francisco Mayor Joseph Alito theorized that the murder was the work of a cult called the Death Angels, allegedly responsible for the so-called Zebra Street killings in San Francisco, but no one was arrested. You know what's so strange? It's just like in Arliss's case, it's like he wanted to sexually assault her, but he couldn't do it, or at least didn't for some reason. It's almost like he knew that might leave DNA evidence on the victims or something. Yeah, almost like they got off on just looking at them in a somewhat sexual position. But do they not realize DNA comes in so many other forms, not just semen inside of a body? I mean, it was the 70s. Maybe they didn't know. (laughs) What about the other murder at that time? The second case is that of 21-year-old Janet Ann Taylor. Janet was the daughter of the former Stanford athletic director Chuck Taylor. She had been visiting her friends on campus and was heading home. She was last seen leaving the Stanford campus at around 7.05 p.m. on May 24, 1974, hitchhiking near Janapero Sierra Boulevard and Mayfield Avenue, less than a mile from where Leslie's body was discovered. Janet was found strangled in a ditch on Stanford-owned property early the next morning by a milk truck driver. Officers from the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office said that Janet had not been sexually assaulted. Like Leslie, she was barefoot and had been carrying a purse that could not be found on the scene. Police later found her raincoat and belt and shoes scattered along the side of Sand Hill Road. Police believe the killer was someone who gave Janet a ride. A witness saw a nervous-looking man standing next to a white 1964 Pontiac Catalina at around 12.15 a.m. that morning, not far from the spot where her body was later found. Police considered Ted Bundy as a suspect, but they could not find any evidence linking him to the murder. Investigators were exploring possible links to Leslie's case as well. Janet reportedly had no money in her purse, so police ruled out robbery as a potential motive. Police were really interested in the serial killer idea for these murders. I mean, I agree. They definitely seem connected, but Ted Bundy can't be the killer for every case. Yeah, I get that he was the serial killer of the time, and it's so easy to blame him, but unfortunately, he wasn't the only one. You said these cases were solved through DNA in 2018 as well. What a year for DNA evidence. Just like the murder of Arliss Perry, Leslie and Janet's case went unsolved for over 40 years until late 2018 when police arrested a man in his 70s named John Arthur Gertrude for both murders. Police connected DNA found on Leslie's clothing to John and couldn't help but notice the similarities in MO between her and Janet's case. So they tested the DNA found on Janet's clothing with that of John, and that too was a match. Investigators had been suspicious that the cases were connected, but were unable to prove it until they submitted the DNA to the Parabone Nanolabs. At the time of the murders, John had been working as a medical technician at Stanford University. The victims' families believed that the women had no prior connection to their killer. Further investigation revealed that John had a dark criminal past, including a prior conviction for sexual assault. When John was just a teenager, his father, a sergeant in the military, was stationed at a base in Germany. It was there 18-year-old John sexually assaulted and murdered a 15-year-old girl named Margaret Williams as she was leaving a church event. 
Her body was later discovered in an isolated area nearby. He was given a 10-year sentence and served eight years before being released back into the world. Prison clearly did nothing to change him, as he would go on to subject several more women to the same fate. So far, he has been charged with three counts of murder, but police suspect that there may be more and are working to potentially connecting him to unsolved murders in San Francisco and other surrounding areas. Not at all suggesting that Stephen Crawford wasn't involved in Arliss's murder, but it would be interesting to compare that palm print that didn't belong to Stephen with John. Like we talked about earlier, it's possible Stephen found her body and ejaculated after the fact, or even that he and John worked together that night. John suspiciously fits the young blonde guy description too, and it seems hard to believe that the two vicious killers could be operating on the same campus at the same time. This is crazy. I feel like they really could be connected. Either way, Arliss still paid the price. How did her family feel about the case being closed after all these years? When it was announced that Arliss Perry's murder had been solved, her family had mixed feelings. Her 88-year-old mother, Jean, was shocked and relieved that her daughter's killer had finally been unmasked. Her only regret was that her husband, who had died only three months prior to the discovery, wasn't alive to see it happen. Jean is quoted as saying, Marvin went to his grave still wondering who had taken his daughter's life. Arliss's sister, Karen Barnes, told KGO her mother was still struggling with the why behind it all. Karen doesn't believe they will ever learn why Arliss was taken from them so young. Bruce went on to become a very successful doctor in child psychology. He is currently the senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy in Houston, Texas, and a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Finberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. Eventually, Bruce married again and had children and grandchildren of his own. Arliss was still transitioning into adulthood when her life was so cruelly taken. She was embarking on a journey of self-discovery and the adventure of leaving home for the first time. Arliss and Bruce deserved more time together. They deserved the opportunity to bring their dreams to life together. Regardless of who or why Arliss was murdered, nothing can bring back the beautiful life that was taken. DNA helped bring closure to the families discussed in this case in the end, but there are so many families out there still wondering. The DNA Doe Project is a nonprofit initiative that uses investigative genetic genealogy to identify John and Jane Doe's identified remains. In five short years, they have become the go-to organization for law enforcement agencies and medical examiners across North America, helping them solve their most intractable cases. It is their commitment that no Jane or John Doe remain unnamed due to the inability of a community to afford the technology necessary to identify them. Through the Donate program, qualifying agencies can take advantage of their services, even when their budgets are too stretched to afford their specialized investigative technique. If you want to donate or if you are looking for a missing loved one, please visit dnadoeproject.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at cremenconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Podcast for our question of the week. You can also find us on TikTok. Steph, what's our conjure tip of the week? When it comes to mental clarity, the most reliable herb is Tulsi, also known as Holy Basil, Queen of the Herbs. Its holiness stems from the fact that Hindus regard it as a manifestation of the goddess Tulsi. Tulsi is used to bless homes and is often found prominently placed near entranceways in India. 
It's been determined that it also has antioxidant properties, lowers cortisol levels, and influences brain neurochemistry. And no one has ever complained about making their home safer and their minds clearer. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.